Hey, greetings, everyone. Lieutenant Colonel Allen West, and welcome to the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Steadfast and Loyal podcast. And, you know, one of the great things about being in America is that you can be a kid or you can be, you know, middle-aged guy, and you're watching someone on television, someone that you admire, someone that their story you are drawn to. And then the next thing you know, you meet this person and you find out that you're serving in, on a board of the same organization. And then you get the opportunity to have this person on and interview them on your podcast. Well, that's how I feel about my dear friend, Dean Kane. Dean Kane was born in Mount Clements, Michigan, to actress Sharon Thomas Kane and Roger Tanaka. His mother married his adopted father, director Christopher Kane, when Dean was three. Though he grew up in Malibu and attended Santa Monica High School, his career plans favored professional football over acting. While at Princeton University, he completed a history major and set a Princeton record for interceptions in a season, 12. After signing with the Buffalo Bills, sadly, a knee injury ended his pro career before it began. And Dean was cast in a number of commercials and TV parts before landing his breakthrough role as Superman Clark Kent in the series Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman in 1993. He has now joined the ranks of those fleeing the Republic, Communist Republic, of California and the failed policies of Governor Gavin Newsom and now resides in the state of Nevada. Dean Kane, my friend, it's so good to see you. Welcome to the Steadfast and Law Podcast. Colonel West, it's an honor, my friend. Always an honor to see you and always an honor to speak with you. Yes, sir. It's, it's fantastic. You know, talk to us about, okay, here you are. You've had this successful career at Princeton University playing football. You get to the Buffalo Bills. You have this knee injury. What is going through your mind? Honest to goodness, I was, you know, I will say young and dumb because I, I didn't realize that there was any issue. I figured, okay, I had this injury. It's going to be fine. I'll come back. I'll just come back next year. I'll get a year to get stronger and more prepared for the NFL, and I'll be back. And uh, it just didn't turn out that way. My injury was such that I tore my lateral meniscus completely, mm. that cartilage on my knee, and I blew away a piece of the cartilage off the femur, the femoral head there. So it was more serious, but I still thought, okay, I'm still coming back. I might have been in the third year of shooting Lois and Clark and been about 29 years old before I, honest to goodness, realized I'm not going to play in the NFL again. Because it takes, you know, as an athlete, even as a fighter, you see it all the time happen. Yeah. You know, athletes just don't want to give up that athletic um, mantle. And I, and I, I, I never did. I got to play Superman, which was great, mm -hmm. but uh, and I got to pretend to be an athlete. But, but that was that was it. You know, I just figured, okay, I'm going to be okay. It's no big deal. It took a minute though, because I had, you know, I made a little bit of money signing my contract and playing. I was carried on the team till November. 
Then I had to figure out, you know, hey, I better make some money because dad is not going to be footing the bill all the time. Uh, and so I started, you know, doing some commercials, trying to be trying my hand at screenwriting. And um, and I just kept pushing, pushing, pushing the, you know, the old adage, you know, never give up, never surrender. You know, I, I just persevered and kept pushing and pushing and finally got my break as an actor. But I just didn't think that that athletics were done. But I will tell you a funny story after being playing playing in the NFL for that little bit of time, then going off and then playing Superman, the Buffalo Bills brought me back and they brought me back not to play, but to be a, uh, an honorary captain for the oh. final game of the year against the Miami Dolphins and whoever won, won that div our division. Wow. Um, and so it was a big game. So I walked out, you know, in my civvies in December in Buffalo <laughs> in a big old December or January, I can't remember, but in a big old coat, you know, with Bruce Smith and Jim Kelly and Andre uh -huh. Reed. And there was Dan Marino on the other side. And I got to go out there and do that. It was great. But then uh, being on the field and listening to that, I, I had forgotten how much pain was involved in football. Yeah. And just listening to the shots and the hits. And Andre Reed took a big hit right on the sideline, right in front of me, short of a first down, steps off the field, and he's just leaning over. And I'm standing right next to him. And I could just felt it. I felt his pain. And he just turns to me and goes, hey, man how do you get into that acting thing anyway? <laughs> I was like, yeah, that makes sense. That makes well, good well, sense. Well, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, you came from an acting pedigree, so it was always in you. Was that something you were able to fall back on? Was that something you had done prior to going to Princeton University, doing a little acting here or there? Yeah, well, my father's a director. My mother's an actress. Yeah. I grew up on set my whole life. I grew up with the likes of, Sean Penn, Chris Penn, Charlie Sheen, Emilio Estevez, uh, Rob Lowe, um, Holly Robinson. These are all the kids that I grew up with. And I watched them all branch off and become very successful actors. And it honestly just seemed like the thing to do. Yeah. Like that's what they were all doing. Our parents were involved in the industry and everybody sort of just slid into it. And it was a really natural thing. I didn't feel like, oh my gosh, I'm on a film set any more than I felt like, oh my gosh. I mean, I felt like that when I got to the NFL, I was like, oh my gosh. You know, there's Shane Conlon, there's Bruce Smith. Mm -hmm. But I also said, you know, I'm playing football and I know this world. And that's the same thing with being with uh, with acting and being on set. And I've done every job. I write, produce, direct, act. I've held the boom. I've got coffee. I'm a runner. I've done every job. So I appreciate every job on it. And I understand the process from start to finish. So it was already a, it was like if my dad had been a, a you know, a cobbler and made shoes I'd know how to do that because I was exposed to it all the yeah. time. He was always trying to cultivate my writing. He was always having me read his scripts. He was always asking me questions about, you know, uh, a, a shot and why this worked and, and explaining something to me. So I was just getting that information um, all the time. It was a wonderful upbringing, but, and I'm so fortunate to have my dad in my life. He adopted me when I was three, when he married my mother and he's been the strongest influence on my life, but bar none. Well, that's why it's so important that we have good, strong fathers in the home to, to really help young men to become men. And I think that when you look at some of the problems we see, especially in our urban population centers, the lack of that positive role model has had a devastating effect on these young men in their homes. But, you know, how is it that you come to get the opportunity to audition for this role as an iconic figure in America as Superman. I mean, because I think about the old days in black and white, George Reeves as Superman, and then, of course, Christopher Reeves as, as Superman, a tragic uh, accident. 
And now Dean Cain is auditioning to be the next generation of Superman. How did that happen? I just happened. I'd been knocking around, you know, uh, Hollywood trying to get audition, you know, get roles. And that like I saw all the other faces of all the same guys, you know, the same group running around. You kind of figure out who's kind of getting there because um, you see him in all the same auditions and everything mm -hmm. else. And I'd gotten the script the night before for Superman. And I was just starting to get better and better as an actor. I was starting to figure it out. I just guest starred on some Beverly Hills 90210 episodes and guest starred on a couple things, you know, a different world and, and life goes on. And so I was starting to get there and it kind of just clicked to me. And it clicked to me when I read the script. I read the script for this and I didn't think, first of all, they said this, it's the new live action Superman. And I thought this is going to be terrible because, you know, <laughs> what are we going to do with the, with the TV budget? You know, no way. Then I read the script and I was like, oh, wow. Okay. This version is Clark Kent is the guy yeah. and Superman is the, is the disguise he puts on so he can he so he can maintain his anonymity and be a regular person while still doing good and helping others out. Mm -hmm. And I thought this is a really interesting take. Deborah Joy Levine created it. The show was called Lois and Clark, mm -hmm. um, so way ahead of its time in that it had a very very strong female protagonist who really drove the show. She really drove the show. And Terry Hatcher, in my opinion, mm -hmm. is still the best Lois Lane of all time. No offense to the others, but I just think. She is the best incarnation of Lois Lane. And I think Christopher Reeve is the best art incarnation of, of Superman. But, um, you know, the, I just had this idea of like, you know, okay, going in. I read the script. I walked in. I was the first person the producers saw. And uh, it was a guy named Robert Butler, who was a fantastic director. And he creates, you know, he, Hill Street Blues, all these other shows yeah. that he's the guy who directed it, gave the show tone found everything. He he sat with us for a couple of weeks, went through character development, I mean, in a way that I had never seen, and did such a great job uh, with Deborah Joy on the pilot. It was amazing. But I walked in, and it was just Deborah Joy Levine and my audition, and and Bob Butler, who I didn't know at the time, and a you know casting associate. And I said, I read it last night. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think I might have a different take on this. And then he said, great, let's see it. We read it, and he said, okay, great, thank you. And I left. And that was it. And usually you hear pretty quickly whether you got something or they, they're interested in you. Weeks went by. And I said, all right, well, it's just another audition that I didn't get. And I was at a party with some friends and my buddy knew some casting people. And one of them was a Warner Brothers cast or a Lorimar television at the time and said, hey, they really like you for that Superman thing. I was like, what? I thought that was dead. <laughs> Next thing you know, I started getting paired up, coming and auditioning. Mm -hmm. We did rounds of audition you know six seven eight rounds of it it felt like pairing up with different people and uh i knew they were concerned that i looked young because uh i have kind of a baby face i was 26 at the time wow. uh and and you know the other supermen had been older and when people want to insult me they call me Superboy, and uh that's okay and and, and i'm a japanese uh a descent so they started calling me sushi man things like that which is fine yeah. I, I got a thick skin i mean it'd be like if i made fun of you for being a colonel like, how much is that going to hurt? <laughs> not, not much. Not, not, <laughs> exactly. So uh, I was like, well, that's kind of silly. But I went in and read and read and read. And it just made sense to me the way the character was put, you know, was created. So I just felt like I had a, an interesting take. And thank God that the uh, and, and very lucky that the producers and directors and everybody felt the same. And they gave me that shot. And um, even when we were shooting the show, I was just concerned. Will anybody buy me as Superman? You know, and, and fortunately they did, and it was a big success. It was a huge success. And so what was it like the first time when you looked at yourself and you had on the red cape? Man, it was terrifying because the first thing it is put me in an orange, I mean, I'm sorry, in a blue Lycra, just blue Lycra, just, just tights. Uh-huh. 
with no S, no nothing, a, a little spot to, you know, use the restroom if you had to. But before, before I even put on the boots or the, it's just putting on a blue skin. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, we are in big trouble here. And then finally, then we put on the little, you know, the little red little panties. And then you put on the boots and then, you know, we, you got, then you put the other cape on and you're like, all right, this started to look pretty cool, but it, it, it didn't become real until that S gets yeah. slapped on the chest. And then, uh, then it was pretty cool. By the by, the beginning it was very. I was felt very self conscious in it. But by the fourth year, man, I could have gone to the grocery store and just been fine walking through, in the suit because you just get used to it. It's yeah. just the thing you get used to. Now, you became an iconic figure, and like I said, when you know the Lois and Super and Lois and uh, Clark came out in nineteen ninety three, I was thirty two years of age. And I remember watching it and just being enthralled with it. What was it like for you to understand the impact and, and the, the, the influence that you could have on so many young lives that were tuning in to you as Superman? You know, it's funny. This is, pre, this is sort of the birth of the Internet back in 93. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a lot of stuff going on the way it is now where everything is under such a microscope and, and anything you say now is broadcast to you know, the entire world, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's a good thing that that was the case. I can only imagine if the show were to have aired today and had the sort of impact that it had then now, I can't even imagine what that spotlight and pressure would have felt like. Then it didn't feel like much. I had very strong convictions, very strong morals and beliefs mm -hmm. from a very strong family. My father's a farm boy from South Dakota. Um, my grandfather, commander in the Navy, my uncle, Lieutenant Colonel in the air force. Mm -hmm. There was all a lot of, I played sports. Everything was yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. They were very you know, strict rules to adhere to and, and ways to conduct yourself. And so I was taught that stuff as a young man growing up. And I grew up in Malibu, California. A lot of kids were, you know, the stoners and the surfers mm -hmm. and that whole thing. But I was an athlete. I, that's, I didn't appeal to me. Drugs and all that would not, that had no appeal to me. How, you know, how could I do drugs and then go run for four miles? You know, right. it just didn't work. So that stuff just became something that was, you know, people knew don't even try to do drugs around Dean. He didn't like it. So just, you know, just leave it alone and just don't bring it near him. And that's kind of how it went growing up in Malibu. And uh, it, it was great. The, the having the, you know, the, the values and morals, I look at Superman as the strongest being ever on the planet Earth. And he, and, and he happened to be raised in small town Kansas by a yes. farmer and his wife instilled with purely American values. And that's why the strongest, most powerful being on earth became the most kind, kind and moral human being out there only to do good and help others. That's really what he was there to do for truth, justice, and the American way. We never said that though. We didn't say the American way when I was on the show, we never said that phrase, but that was the current phrase. And that's the one I grew up with. And it's the one, if you look at my Twitter bio, it's still in the bio because I do believe in that truth, justice, and the American way, because I do believe the government, you know, of, by, and for the people is the best way ever, ever, ever created by man to govern. Um, and so I still stand by truth, justice, and the American way, and I will to the day I die. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, was there ever some moment of an epiphany, or as I like to call it, the uh, Saul to Paul Damascus Road uh, revelation that made you this very strong, very visible conservative, especially when you think about being out there in, in Hollywood, which kind of looks down its nose at conservatives. Uh, was there a moment 
where a light came on or was this just a continuation of all the things that made Dean Kane who he was growing up? Honestly, I feel like it was a continuation. I feel like I always, being an athlete, you understand a meritocracy. Mm-hmm. You understand hard work will bring results. You understand that you're going to get knocked down. I don't care how big and strong or fast you think you are. You're going to get knocked on your tail and you better get back up. As, as said often, and Denzel Washington said it very well, get knocked down seven times, get up eight. That's right. And that's the thing you learn. And you learn as good as you are, man, someone's going to knock you down. And you, and you better get back up. That's part of the game. It happens to all of us all the time. And that's life. So I always look at sports as a metaphor for life. And, you know, I'm all about equality of opportunity. Everybody shows up. Mm-hmm. Everybody's ready to play ball. Let's go. If you earn it on the field, you got it. I don't care if you're black, white, green, yellow, Asian. If you got it, you you deserve to be there. And that to me was a what made sense for life, you know. Uh, and if you're given the effort, you belong you belong on the team. <clears throat> Sometimes you give the effort and you don't get on the team, and that's life, yeah. and that's the thing. And so, so for me, I think it was just a combination of being an athlete, understanding the meritocracy, uh, hard work, perseverance, um, and that just stuck with me. It stuck with me for those who would say, you know. Well, you know, participation trophies, man, we had one trophy. <laughs> that was your most valuable player. Yeah. That was it. That's what you get. And if you don't earn that or earn one of the other most improved or one of the other categories, Hey, you're just a player and you got, and you aspire and you celebrate those people. And you go, I want to be like Michael Jordan. I want to be like Michael Jordan. What did it take Michael Jordan to get to where he is? Hard, hard, hard work, never yeah. giving up. Hear and know a million times and not believe in it. And these are just conservative principles. Oddly, they're conservative principles and they're frowned upon in today's world in so many instances. And I just don't, I just don't understand that. And if you study history, I'm a history major. You know, you start yeah. talking about socialism and everybody gets yes. everything. And I'm certainly not going to tell you anything you don't know, sir. But, you know, you can't, there is no equality of outcome. It just doesn't happen. It's no. no possible way. It ends up with a few elites at the top who just sort of say, this is what you get. This is what you don't get. And, and you know, you end up, everybody's poor. Everybody's hungry. You're waiting in lines for bread. You know, it's the, the American ingenuity, the ability for people, individuals, the individual rights to be able to make those decisions on your own is what makes us successful and, 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 and good, strong populace. You know, I often talk about the soft bigotry of low expectations. And to me, that's what leftism and socialism is is all about. You know, I just recently saw the interview that Tim Scott did on The View and to to tell him that you're the exception. uh, Because, I mean, how how incredibly offensive, as he said, but but that's that mentality of the left that says you can't make it. And if you do make it, it's only because you slip through. But we can help you to have some standard. Uh, we can give you the crumbs. How is it that this mentality has crept in, especially on a day you and I are taping this, this uh, interview? This is the 79th Remembrance of D-Day. Okay, those guys were not about equality of outcomes. Those guys were fighting against the very same principles and philosophies that have now infiltrated into our country. How do we get to this point, Dean? Because even in 1993, this was not this this would have been unconscionable for us to believe it could happen. It absolutely 100 percent would be uh, unconscionable. I, I don't understand it. I mean, if the people from the if the greatest generation who we are celebrating the 79th anniversary of D-Day, and you look back at I am fascinated 
with uh, war and diplomacy. I took my comprehensive exams on war and diplomacy. Um, just World War II was the most fascinating time in the world for me to study. Uh, one of the trips I want to take is over to Normandy. I want to look at those cliffs. Yes. I want to just see what those guys saw and you know get an inkling of what they felt, that unknown. I've, I've been to war. I was in Iraq in 2005. Mm -hmm. I saw our men and women out there doing their things. I spent much longer there than I wanted to. <laughs> I wanted to turn around and go home almost instantaneously. But then I just saw how incredible these men and women were when you're in that circumstance. So I can't even start to imagine the mindset of these men and women um, back, in, uh, back on D-Day 79 years ago. Uh, I don't know how... I think, you know, it's that it's that's maybe it's cliche to say it, you know, uh, hard men create, you know, good times, good that's times right. create soft men. And here we are with a bunch of soft men. Now, we have a group. And again, this is not a surprise to you, but we have, you know, we have an incredible amount of hard war fighters uh, that are out and around uh, mm -hmm. of whom I know very many of them. And uh Heaven forbid you really want to take on the United States because these men and women, I mean, they, you know, a situation like Afghanistan and you look at those guys who went out there and just freed a bunch of people who came out and did what they should have done, what our government should have done. Guys like, you know, like, like Chad, I have it right over here. I always Chad Robichaud. Yeah. yeah. Chad Robichaud, guys like him, Tim yeah. Kennedy. These guys are legends. They're unbelievable. And those are the kind of, those are sheepdog. Yep. Those are the men that, and that we have a whole bunch of them here, but, but they're not the ones who have been sitting on the news talking about this or that or this silly issue where like everybody should be treated equally? Um, so the, the, those those men and women, um, those sheepdog men and women, I think I, I think we're in a weird place right now, and I mm -hmm. and I hope in ten years we can look back at this and just shake our heads as to the the stupidity of the things we were concerned about and the dumb sort of ridiculous issues that that, that seem to be so prevalent now which really have nothing to do with what 99% of the people yeah. on this planet are struggling with. You know, we have an abundance of food. We have an abundance of, of energy. We're cutting those things for some weird reason, but we have so much here. It is that, that period of time where we have great times. So we're getting soft men and that, that is a recipe for disaster. It absolutely is. And, and speaking of which, now I'm going to ask you a tough question. Maybe you'll give me the Heisman and push away on it, but have you ever had conversations with the, the current uh, iteration of Superman, Henry Cavill, and, and talked about you know, what it was like for you to portray Superman? Has he ever given you a call or anything like that? And how do you see his portrayal of Superman right now? I got to meet Henry um, at the premiere of Immortals, which is a film he starred in. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Great guy. Yeah. Great guy. And I said, you know, good luck. I mean, he looks the part. He's got that chiseled. Yeah. You know, jawline, he's in great shape, big, strong guy. Um, and I think he did a great job playing yeah. Superman. But I just think the iteration, Zack Snyder's a great filmmaker. It makes mm -hmm. incredible images, too. Um, but I think that world is too dark for the Superman that I like. Mm -hmm. the, the, the Superman of Christopher Reeve had mm -hmm. a wink and a nod and a certain... I guess lightness and positivity about it. And it wasn't about having a Jesus complex or a God complex of any sort, uh, which was a big part of the Zack Snyder stuff. And, and I understand that I get that. I just didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoyed the Christopher Reeve version or even the version that I got to play or George Reeve. In fact, my version of Clark Kent Superman was a bit of George Reeves 
mm-hmm. playing Clark Kent and a bit of Christopher Reeve playing Superman. And that was a wonderful, wonderful mix for me. I was so happy about that. So uh, Henry's done a great job. I just think it's a dark iteration. Yeah. And it's Batman's world, man. That's Batman's yeah, world. Yeah, it is. When it, it was it, Batman it, versus Superman, I was like, this, this, that's going to be a movie? What is it? It's going to be like, what, 11 <laughs> seconds long? Batman, Superman, finished, done, and end of story, right? Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. You know, I recently wrote a piece on Town Hall because if you, you are a Superman aficionado, so you know about the reference to Bizarro World. Uh, it kind of seems like we are living in the Bizarro World right now. I mean, I mean you know, Superman does, you know, good and all that, but that he's punished for that and he's sent away to the cube-shaped uh, planet and and everything is opposite of what it should be. And, and you get that feeling about this country right now. A hundred percent. In fact, myself and another former Warner Brothers employee used to work on some super stuff have been talking about exactly that. And I know that, that Warner Brothers is not excited to bring me back to play Superman for anything. I, I don't think they're excited about anything of that nature. I know that uh, I did get to play they Super. Brought, they brought back Michael Keaton as Batman. Why can't you that. come back? That's a great thing. I love Michael Keaton as Batman. But um, there, I, I got to play Supergirl's dad on, on Supergirl, which uh-huh. was great fun. Um, but I just think, you know, I would love to see that version you're talking about right now, which is sort of bizarro world, where it's the Superman that I got to play in today's society he would be Mm. ostracized for all of the quote good things he thought he was doing for people we we touched on it a couple times even on lois and clark where he goes and saves somebody from a burning building that is about to explode and then it explodes a second later but he had a whip in there pretty quickly and they're like oh my neck my neck is sore i'm gonna sue you it's like (laughs) what that's the kind of stuff that it is so we i've been talking with this, this this person and we're we're considering doing a project that is that without without it being Superman, without it being Lois Lane, without it, you know, but they're superheroes or a former superhero or something of that where they just don't understand what is going on with this world. And you can make some really fun statements. They've done some things, you know, like the boys and some other things on different yeah. shows that that deal with that that stuff to some degree. But I thought it'd be really compelling to see Lois and Clark um, sort of revived in this strange world that we're currently this bizarro world that we're living in i think that would be an awesome concept and 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 i gotta tell you i would be and and my oldest daughter who is a dc comics fanatic uh we'd be the first two people to go see it as a matter of fact you know she'd want to be there for the premiere um (laughs) because i guarantee she's invited well awesome aubrey you hear that dad see dad's got some pull okay he's not such (laughs) an old man after all but i think that that would be very appropriate to give people an insight into how is it that all of a sudden inflation is a good thing and fiscal responsibility is not how is it that all of a sudden we can't protect our own borders and we can just allow people in illegally i mean we are completely upside down and if we could Put that in a package that people can relate to it from, you know, the DC comic series. I think it'd be a blockbuster hit. Well, that's the hope. But I don't know that DC would want to work with it either. So it would have to be something sort of divorced from those um, because DC went woke in its own way, you know, and yeah. and they, they, you know, I got I got lambasted on Twitter for, you know, there was, the, you know, Jonathan Kent, Lois Lane and Clark Kent's son is gay and he's dating a hacktivist and here's the first gig and oh, i was like gosh. what and he's protesting you know people being being um you know uh, uh, migrants being turned away and things of that nature and and i said that that's not 
groundbreaking in 2022 is when I think it happened. Yeah. You know, that's bandwagoning. And, and, the, and yeah. that, that, that ended up dying. Um, nobody wanted to read it. Nobody saw it. So it was unsuccessful and it went away. And I hope that happens with more and more projects and people start making projects that promote the values that I think that, that Americans hold deal. The idea of individualism, the idea of individual rights and, you know, standing against the the zeitgeist of the day you know the person who's really brave is the person who said i'm not going to get that shot yeah that's that's true bravery that's one person standing up against the entire machinery um and and, and voicing an opinion that is unpopular which is the opinion exactly that the first amendment is supposed to protect and it just got a little we gotten completely out of whack so uh i'd love to be able to I mean, the idea of the no borders is insane. It's that is totally. crazy. The idea of inflation, it only happens when the government prints money. And mm -hmm. what they're doing is taking money out of everybody's pocket. Your dollar, my dollar mm -hmm. is now worth less because they've lessened the value of the dollar by printing trillions of dollars. That's a tax on everybody. And the fact that people can't see it is just baffling to me. So I think we're in this weird age where we're all just kind of running around or not everybody and a lot of us have our eyes away from our, our hands yeah. away from our eyes but a lot of people are running around willfully blindfolded and i don't get it because that ain't yeah. that is not sustainable no it's not you know you've been in a lot of uh faith-based films will you continue to do that as well i mean you've done some fantastic work out there i love doing faith-based films and i do them uh, listen, they're not, it's not a money thing. I promise you that because a lot of these little ones, especially when I work with the, a certain company, JC Films, you know, it's, there's no money involved. This is about telling stories that, that otherwise wouldn't get told. And it's about, you know, sharing sort of biblically inspired stories um, that have a, a real morality to them that people can experience, but that wouldn't have been told by Hollywood. Hollywood would never make a movie like that. Yeah. Now, Mel Gibson made The Passion of the Christ outside of the Hollywood system. Right. He's about to make The Resurrection of the Christ outside the Hollywood system. Yeah. Nobody wants to touch that sort of a thing, but but uh, you know, I, I'm happy to make them. I hear so many, I go to a Comic-Con and most people are there for Superman, but you know, three or four out of 10 will mention the faith-based films and how this yeah. particular film inspired them or they really enjoyed this. or they like to be able to sit down and watch with their family and get, you know, and, and learn something in a sense, or be able to teach their children something, a, a lesson, a life lesson by watching the films. And I think that's very, very valuable as a father. And, and, and my son is now 23. So mm -hmm. um, he, it's, it's not like innuendo anymore. The kids, he's a, he's a young man and he's, yeah. he's learning, but he, I think he pays more attention now than he even did when he was younger. Because well, these are things he's faced with every day now. Oh, yeah. What, what our kids are facing today, I mean, you know, I went to high school 75 through 79. I cannot imagine some of the things that our kids are facing. You know, it just hit me when we talk about faith-based films. I think you should, you know, do an, a reincarnation of, of Samson. I mean, what a great story. I mean, the great Victor Mature, I think he was the last person to portray Samson. I mean, they tried to do it. Hollywood tried to do it and messed it up, just like the the, the Noah story with, uh, what's his name? Uh, they had playing Noah uh, Gladiator. Oh, uh, Russell Crowe. Yeah, Russell Crowe. You can't have Russell Crowe playing Noah. <laughs> I mean, that was crazy. Or this uh, the, the thing where they had Christian Bale playing Moses. Give me a daggum break. You know, that, <laughs> that's Charlton Hesse. And then they screwed up Ben-Hur. I mean, you don't touch Ben-Hur. Am I Such right, Dean? Such an amazing classic. Unbelievable. And and the, and Moses was unbelievable when I watched. Yeah. I mean, I grew up on those. Yeah. 
and they were fantastic. I would watch them today if they were on. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think you should try to bring back Samson. Now, last Deal. question. Yes, sir. And, and this really gets to the essence of who you have portrayed, where we are in this country. How can men and women today tap into their inner Superman? I think it's to, to be brave in the face of opposition. You look at um, Riley Gaines. Mm. You look at the other girl from University of Pennsylvania who just mm -hmm. came out and said, this isn't right. And to stand firmly um, as principled individuals against some of the madness that we're seeing and, and take those slings and arrows. Be able to state your opinion without any hate or malice, mm -hmm. but state your opinion on why you think something is important and stand by it. And, and, I, and I think that in itself is the epitome of being a superhero. I really do. And, and I get, you know, I get lambasted all the time on Twitter and social media and everything. And um, I take it as a badge of courage these days. Yeah. Um, usually it's the first thing is I'll, I'll, I'll say something that I'm against. I'm, you know, I'll say something like I'm against biological men competing against women in sports. I'm a former professional athlete. Yeah. I, half of my ex-girlfriends are former professional athletes. Um, I love uh, female athletes. I respect them tremendously, but they have no business competing in, uh, you know, MMA against a man. Yeah. They have no, so for, to say that, like, I have no problem s saying that, but people will come after me. Like I have just said the most offensive, ridiculous thing on the planet. And there's just no way that stuff makes sense. And so people saying things like that and having an opinion and standing behind it is a, is a true way to be a superhero without any bigotry, without being mean, without condescending. If I say something like that, you know what I get back on Twitter? You were the worst Superman ever. I'm sorry. So what does that have to do with the, that, that dude who just knocked out that woman in the MMA and, and broke yeah. her ocular bone because, yeah. you know, he's, he's a man and he threw a, threw a hammer. Yeah. And that's, that's the difference. You know, fight a man then. You know, you're intact and you're a male. I just think Leah Thomas winning, you know, woman of the year. I mean, that stuff is incredible. just insane to me. Absolutely incredible. But that's part of the bizarro world that Agreed. we live in. So if I'd I have done that 20 years ago and told you that stuff would happen, people would be like, you're insane. It, it would probably would have been on Saturday Night Live. Five years ago. Yes, sir. You said that five years ago. People just, ah, you're, you're out of control. <laughs> so, Dean, you continue to be an American superhero, a real live American superhero. And it's a blessing and an honor to be able to call you friend. And I want to thank you so much for taking time to be with us here on the Steadfast and Lowell podcast. It's an honor, and anytime you want me back on, I'm back on, sir. All right. Well, I want, for the announcement of the new Bizarro World movie, we'll have you back on. Done. All right. All right. Dean Kane, thanks so very much. God be with you. Thank you, sir. God bless. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so very much for joining us on this episode of the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. A very special thanks to Dean Kane for taking time out of a busy schedule to be with us. And as always, if you like this podcast, please click the like button and share it with others. And until next time, steadfast and loyal. Before they burn it down.